There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Adam Woodward. And I'm Caitlin Quinlan. On the show this week, Bond is back for Craig's last stand in No Time to Die. We're also reviewing the small budget skydiving drama Anne at 13,000 feet. And in Film Club, we're going back to 1983 for Sean Connery's final off-brand appearance as James Bond in Never Say Never Again. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. This week's episode of Truth and Movies is sponsored by Terra Virtua, the world's first fully immersive social digital collectibles platform. Terra Virtua is an entertainment focused collectibles platform. Using blockchain technology, it allows collectors of digital assets to display and interact with their virtual goods in augmented reality, virtual reality, and in 3D on PCs. Leveraging the latest in mobile and gaming technologies, their mission is to engage and connect fan-based user communities and turbocharge fandom. Head to terravirtua.io, that's T-E-R-R-V-I-R-T-U-A dot I-O to find out more. Yes, welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Adam. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing, Adam? Pretty good. I've been looking forward to this all week, I've got to say. Um, it was super fun seeing a big film in a big cinema again and, and uh, it, it felt like a proper event, a proper experience. So yeah, quite excited to talk about it. Oh, terrific. And Caitlin, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome back. I think this is the first time you've been on since we've revamped in 2021. Could you please uh, reintroduce yourself to us and the listeners? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, I'm Caitlin Quinlan. I'm a film critic from London, a regular Little White Lies contributor. Um, you can find me in the in the mag and online a fair bit. So yeah, always a pleasure to, to be on the podcast as well. Yeah, you've, you've been off in sunnier climes, haven't you, recently on the festival circuit? We have. Both Adam and I had the had the pleasure of being in, in San Sebastian for the festival, which was just a dream. I mean, like, what a place to have a film festival. It's, you know, by the sea, it's warm, the food's amazing. Yeah, I had a, had a great time out there. What, what's, what's the vibe in San Sebastian? What sort of films do they play? Is there a certain genre or whatever that they showcase? It's, it's quite a mix, I think. They have a lot of, you know, uh, obviously like Basque films and they focus a lot on Spanish language cinema, which is great. Um, but, you know, really it's kind of a, a, a mixture of films that have been at other festivals before and ones that have sort of managed to find a home um, in San Sebastian. So, um, yeah, we saw some great kind of, you know, Chinese uh, sort of police noirs and uh, like Korean coming of age dramas, just a total, a total mixture. 
any very quick titles we should be looking out for that might finally make it make it over here eventually well adam actually uh recommended this one to me which is the the, the police drama uh, fire on the plane which hopefully we'll see see some release somewhere i don't know we'll, we'll find out um but i was a big fan of that one um and uh also a, a netflix film even uh by tatiana hueso which was at Cannes, called prayers for the stolen definitely one to mm. to keep an eye on adam any any highlights from you yeah i thought they had a really cool retrospective on like korean cinema from the 60s that had, wow. that had been all kind of restored and all, all had like amazing titles like aimless bullet and things like that and there's a re- I think the most famous one probably of the ones they had there was called The Housemaid, mm. um, which you may have seen, but it's like a real, you can, it's a real clear influence on uh, Parasite. Um, really, really good. And then also Terence Davies' Benediction, mm. looking ahead to kind of newer releases, which is going to be at London Film Festival quite soon. Um, yeah, re- really amazing film. And actually, um, maybe we'll come on to this a bit, a bit more later, but I- I'm going to kind of pin my colours to the mask now and say... Jack Loudon, 007. Make it happen. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll have to talk over that very shortly. I always find San Sebastian quite a funny one because that seems to be the last film festival of the summer and it happens one week before or uh, two weeks before the London Film Festival, which feels like the first festival of the winter. It's much, <laughs> much greyer and colder affair. But the films this year are fantastic. We'll be talking more about the London Film Festival uh, next week, I believe, on the on the podcast. But for now, you two have been international jet sets. <laughs> so, of course, we should talk about the ultimate international jet set hero, James Bond, finally making it to our screens in No Time to Die. In No Time to Die, Bond has left active service and is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived, however, when his old CIA friend Felix Leiter turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. So, Adam, this has been a long, long, long delayed Bond film. So I, my sort of hype levels have been all over the place. Uh, should we be excited for this one? Did it you know, reach the hype levels that we should expect? Yeah, it's funny you say they've been all over the place because I've kind of gone a bit back and forth on this one myself. And I think I think like, you know, pre-pandemic, in a kind of normal circumstances, any new Bond film is an event. I think this, um, you know... The, the the kind of extended delay and we should say not just the pandemic but before that there mm-hmm. was like a change of director and and other kind of things which delayed the production so it really has been a long time coming um i think possibly the longest uh pause or or, or gap between bond films ever right something like six years um and I, I don't know whether it's helped or hindered the film in terms of anticipation. And I was also a little bit worried that it would be somehow or, or would feel somehow a little bit, um, I, I don't know, like possibly dated somehow, like with the storyline. I mean, I don't think that actually, thankfully, came to pass. I think it actually feels um, like a very modern Bond film. and it, it doesn't feel like a film which was made two or three years ago. Um and it was, as I said earlier, it was amazing to to go go back to a big, big press screening, mm-hmm. um, and and actually see a film like this in in that context in that environment. Um, and it and it is, I must say, it really is um, a, a film which is kind of made for the big screen. I think it's the first Bond film shot on uh, on like sixty five mil Panavision and IMAX cameras. 
so the action scenes and you can kind of look out for it but you'll see when it goes IMAX it's like pretty impressive um, and I think Kari Fukunaga the director and his his production team have really delivered on that sense I mean this is kind of being touted as the film that is going to like save or, or kind of get people back at least to the cinema right because for those people who maybe only go a handful of times a year Bond is like one of the things they will go back for um, so it is it is a big deal and, and I think I would say you know, I, I, we'll get onto this in a bit more detail, but I, I'm a little bit mixed on the film itself, but mm. I think everyone should go and see it. It is a proper, you know, proper event, proper good big screen experience. Yeah. Caitlin, are you, are you a Bond fan? Are you up to speed with Bond? Just, just so we're all introduced. Were you excited for this one? Um, I, I, Admittedly, I'm not a huge Bond fan. I have seen... Uh, maybe two of the other Daniel Craig Bonds. Mm-hmm. I definitely haven't seen the the one that preceded uh, No Time to Die. Um, Bond is just something to me that is, you know, incredibly formulaic and incredibly structured in such a way that I feel like even if I've only seen one, I've seen them all. And I know mm-hmm. sort of to aficionados of Bond, that's maybe, uh, you know, heresy to say, but um, I just I just know what I'm getting in for. It's exciting in lots of ways. It's it's fun in lots of ways. Um, but I don't necessarily feel like I've missed out on a whole load by not having seen every single Bond movie ever made. Um, having said that, it was very exciting, as Adam says, to to be back, you know, at, in, a, in a massive IMAX screen, you know, surrounded by people who were clearly like palpably very excited to see this film. Um, and it felt like a massive event and, and, a, and an occasion, um, which was, you know, it's always fun to, to be around that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the aficionados would be too bent out of shape by that, because I think that's part of the fun of Bond, isn't it? Where you have the pre-title sequence, the gun barrel sequence, the song, yeah. the gun, the car, the well, etc. It's part of the fun. But I suppose then it's about balancing, giving us what, you know, giving the fans what they want, what they expect, but then also judging it up in some way, Adam. I think this is where I sort of sympathise with the screenwriters and the producers of these films, because, you know, they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't, in the sense that, people and when I say people I mean like snooty critics like myself are kind of constantly calling for these films to kind of do something a bit different or take the character in a different direction um and then you know I I think there is a there is a kind of push and pull there between how or like to what extent do you do that and risk essentially upsetting the like loyal fan base um does it really matter that much? Maybe that's something we'll come on to. Like, I think these films maybe take themselves a little bit too seriously sometimes and the whole conversation around them, which is, you know, it, it itself just kind of dominates the headlines mm. in between these films kind of coming out. Talk will invariably turn to, you know, who who will kind of inherit the, the licence to kill next. And I mean, I've already sort of, <laughs> I've already sort of waded into that. But, um, and, and, but I just feel like, you know, it is a time for a bit of a hard reset for this franchise now. And, and, you know, I feel like they've really quite definitively drawn a line under the Craig era with this, maybe for better or worse. I think there'll be like purists who will say that it maybe it maybe flouts the kind of golden rule of Bond um, by, you know, without spoiling anything. I think this film kind of treats the the actor who is playing the character as bigger than the character. Mm. And I was a little bit confused with this, you know, to what extent are we supposed to be honoring and saying goodbye to Daniel Craig's bond or the actor himself? It's a bit of a strange, I don't think the film really quite gets that right. Um, 
and I think it will maybe like rankle a few people. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's also the thing that they can just do the stock storylines and characters and cliches, and and there's a familiarity with it that people like yourself, Caitlin, who maybe haven't seen, you know, that many or haven't even seen the last one. I mean, I I actually would say. Um, this film and the whole Craig era of Bond, it it did break tradition initially, or or certainly with Casino Royale and then, um, and then Quantum of Solace by essentially being like a serialized, continuous story. Right, it wasn't the case before that. I mean, even I think the Brosnan era, there's a few callbacks and and obviously references and throwbacks to older Bonds, but essentially they are like standalone movies, and this is like an arc. And I think they kind of almost wrote themselves into a corner with that. And actually, David Jenkins, our our, our August colleague, was sort of um, comparing this after the screening to to Rian Johnson's uh, The Last Jedi in terms of what it does, in terms of like possibly maybe upsetting some of the hardcore fan base. But I actually think it's a little bit more similar to the film which followed that, Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> because essentially what it does is tries to like unwrite some of the wrongs of Spectre, the previous film, um, which you know was pretty well received at the time. But I think now people regard as like the lesser, you know, down there with kind of Quantum of Solace. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I think this film possibly raises more questions than it answers. It's quite a satisfying conclusion to the Craig era if you're a really big fan of the Daniel Craig Bond. But I don't think it's a particularly great Bond film in the traditional sense. That's that's really fascinating. I, I love how in- invested you are in Bond stuff, Adam. Caitlin, as somebody who's a bit I, more... I'm really of... not, I've got to say. <laughs> I... no, this, is, this is a surprise. Whenever Bond comes along, Adam, you, you, you pull out, you've got the knowledge there. I, 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 do you know what? I just like... I wouldn't ever say I'm a, I'm a like major Bond head, but I have seen all the films and I did grow <laughs> up watching them. Yeah. Uh, and so they're kind of just, they're very much like they've seeped in over the years and, mm-hmm. and I can kind of, you know, refer to them. And I do have a kind of sense of the big, the bigger picture of it, I guess. Yeah. All those bank holidays add up, don't they? <laughs> um, but Caitlin, as somebody who's a bit, maybe a bit more casual the approach to, to Bond. What what's your take on Daniel Craig? This being the last the last his last hurrah. Yeah, I mean I think I really agree with what, what Adam was saying. You know, even as someone who maybe doesn't have that that the the knowledge to that extent, but it, it, it was very clear to me in this film that you know, the the film was much more about the ending than it was about the logic of getting there. So I found that as a standalone film, you know, I had problems with the storyline. I had problems with the kind of like gravity of the villain, which didn't really feel to me like someone who kind of merited the power that he was granted by sort of the end of the film. And it felt very much like this whole film was working towards this great send off for Daniel Craig, which I understand. I think he's been a great bond in the films that I've seen. I think as Adam's saying, he's he's kind of changed the franchise in ways that have made it a lot more serious, a lot more emotional. You know, people think he's like this emo bond um, where, you know, the story's kind of got a bit darker with him and it's sort of, you know, referred more to his like personal history. Um, and in many ways, it feels to me like that, this era of Bond has been very heavily influenced by the way that like television has changed over the last few years and the way that serialized dramas have become, you know, 
uh, like much darker and, and much more kind of even in the aesthetic as well. I think like the kind of shadowy look and the, the, the feel of these last Bond films have, has been very consistent with the kind of television dramas that we've seen recently, too. So I think this was a really good send off for Daniel Craig, as, as Adam said. Um, I just don't know if I buy the, the means by which they got there. Um, yeah, I had a I had a lot of issues with, as I say, like the villain. I mean, as Adam says, that this film kind of tries to correct some of the uh, the sort of spectre arc that they've set up in these previous films, which is I think sort of ended quite conveniently in No Time to Die. It's quite a it's quite a rapid conclusion, I would say, to that mm. part of the story, which maybe, you know, has more build up from the other films, but but for a standalone film, I don't know if it necessarily had the payoff that it that it really uh should have. Yeah. I I mean that is the most unsatisfying. If you've been yeah. invested in, in like the Spectre arc, it's it's a kind of like Thanos click style, like, oh, don't worry about that anymore. That's gone. Right. Like we're just yeah. gonna carry on and, and, and yeah. But um I, I think that the thing with the Craig era is that people tend to think of it as really gritty and, and like you said, Caitlin, very dark and edgy. And it, and it definitely is overall. But this film, interestingly, is a lot more, it's, it's a real like hugs and kisses Bond movie. It's very romantic, I would say. It's, it's very romantic. It's a very romantic Bond film, yeah. Very very romantically shot as well. Yeah. Like the, way, the way it's lens, the cinematography, you know, there's a lot of kind of magic hour stuff in there. Um, the whole thing is, is, is very... Well, by and large, I'd say it's very, yeah, very romantic. It, um, paints this kind of um, picture of a guy, I guess, where in in this sort of very traditional, like John Ford Western mold, he is this kind of like John Wayne riding into the sunset kind of character. And there's a lot of iconography, which I think is trying to encourage you to 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 go along with that. Um, and and you know, I get, I guess we should talk about the the stuff that happens in this movie a little bit without obviously spoiling <laughs> it's, it's it. It's spoiler territory. Yeah, it's hard. Hashtag no, no time it. for spoilers. But um, yeah, I mean, Michael, you, you, I don't think have had a chance to see this. Right? I haven't yet, no. So def- definitely wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to kind of ruin anything for you either. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that the, I mean, talking about the kind of emotional or personal aspect of it, one of the things with this film, which definitely carries on from, from kind of Spectre is, um, Madeline Swan, mm-hmm. uh, played by Lea Sadu, is much more prominent in this film. And actually, the film begins with a bit of a prologue, um, and of where kind of her and and Craig were left off, um, and, and Bond's sort of in in this more, more like you know, he's basically out of the service, retired, um, and then and then she she really plays a more prominent role. Their relationship is like the through line of this movie, basically. Um, and I don't know whether I mean Caitlin. Have you have you seen Casino Royale? Yeah, I've seen Casino Royale and Skyfall. <laughs> yeah, so so Casino Royale sets up Vesper Lind, mm. um, played by Eva Green, as like the big romantic love interest. And it's interesting that the the the, the film kind of call, calls back. This film calls back to her in a really strange way. I think, mm. um, which I think may alienate people who aren't necessarily still hung up on the Casino Royale plotline. Um, and maybe just want to want to enjoy the kind of Sedu Craig um, romance that's going on in this. And yeah, I, I, I sort of pit, <laughs> said it would be funny if they just did a kind of like broken flowers, him going around visiting all his exes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's but the it, thing, but, though. It's like hard to buy into the romantic 
sort of, you know, drama between Craig and Seydu when at the beginning of this film, he's visiting, you know, the grave of his of his past love and like is clearly still quite hung up on her. And it's like the, the everlasting problem with James Bond is that, you know, it's just woman after woman, isn't it? So why should we ever believe that he really is like affectionate towards someone more so than anyone else? I don't know. Just just to quickly add, because I know I know we've got to get on to scores, but I think talking about the kind of women in this film and and looking at the ways that Bond has made progress as a franchise. And I think the real star of this film is um, Lashana Lynch, Mm. who comes in and she's introduced. And and this isn't a spoiler. I think she's this has very much been kind of pushed by the by the by the film um, and the production and the marketing. But she is kind of introduced as the, the new mi6 kind of hotshot agent she's got the 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 iconic code number um, which bond has obviously like relinquished and uh and their their dynamic is great i think they 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 kind of fizz and spark off each other really well i think the film unfortunately undoes a lot of the good work it's trying to do by introducing her and potentially setting up a kind of post craig post bond era for the franchise and and it's yeah i found it really frustrating the way her her character is kind of made to pay deference to bond in like a really like cringy way um so i think she's really great i'd love to see her in a, in a more prominent role going forward um i i don't know about the other characters though i feel like i know that the, the m's and q's and and all these sort of supporting roles have always been there but they just feel really tired now yeah. um even those characters like they try to give sort of Ben Whishaw a little bit more backstory here but it's like it just yeah didn't really work for me oh that's a shame to hear I, I quite liked in Skyfall Inspector where they started to bring in a bit of a influence from Mission Impossible where it became more of a team movie um but that, that's a shame oh gosh okay but let's put some scores on it right to wrap up No Time to Die otherwise we'll be here for six years talking about it uh Adam I'll come to you first this is in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect yeah, and you can read more in my review, <laughs> yeah. which is on the website. It's a very I, good review. I, I like how you uh, you go through all the milestones that have happened in, before this film had even come out. Like yeah. the song winning a Grammy six months before the film's even been released. I mean, that's got to be a first, right? Billie <laughs> Eilish, I mean, her song came out 18 months ago. And and I mean, actually, credit, credit to it, because when it comes on during the opening credits, it doesn't feel old at all. It's like, oh, that's a quite a fresh, decent... I think it's like one of the better Bond songs of the Craig era. I mean, it's better than like Chris Cornell and Absolutely. I mean Sam Smith, Christ. But anyway, <laughs> f- I'd say five, five for anticipation. Um, I I gave it a, I gave it a two in enjoyment, and that's maybe a little bit unfair in that it you know it does deliver on on the kind of big, the big moments, the big action. Um, I just thought, like kind of Caitlin alluded to, it's a little bit clumsy in terms of the, the the overall story and how it gets to where it's trying to get to. But I think ultimately it is it is a really nice send off for Craig, um, and I and I don't necessarily begrudge the film giving him that time in, in the spotlight and, and and letting him kind of ride off into the sunset because I think he has been like a really a really good kind of torchbearer for the whole the whole franchise. And Caitlin, what scores do you give this? I'm going to go one one fewer than Adam in anticipation just because, uh, you know, it, I, I was excited for it. You know, it's a Bond film. I'm very happy to engage with the, that whole world. Um, and I very much knew what I was getting in for. So there wasn't really going to be any kind of surprises here. I was very, very much expecting what it was, what it was going to be and what it was. So I'd say a four in anticipation. Um, I did have a good time watching this. I'll happily give this a three. 
um, for enjoyment. And, um, you know, yeah, I did have problems with the kind of the logistics of the plot. But then I, but then at the same time, you know, you can't really necessarily apply logic to, to sort of megalomaniac villains in, in Bond movies, which is fair enough. Um, yeah, I think... I agree with Adam on some of the the issues around the, the the women characters in the film and wish that a bit more could have been done there. But at the same time, you know, around this whole debate about women and, and Bond, I think women can aspire to be much more than than James Bond, to be honest. So I'm, I'm happy to leave that where it is. Um, and yeah, maybe a, maybe a three also in retrospect. I'm not going to bash it too much. I think it was a great send off for Craig, as, as Adam says. And um, yeah, there was lots to lots to just sit back and enjoy, really, and, and have fun with. Um, so, yeah, happy to happy to give it a three. <laughs> Absolutely. And Caitlin, so so Adam said Jack Loudon for next Bond. Do you have a do you have a take on who should pick up the tuxedo next i mean i can see that well i can see that jake has has offered henry golding in our little chat here which i think is actually quite a good shout um he he definitely would fit the bill i think um it's just not something i really i mean you could probably put any of these like current young lads in that role you know i've seen like joe Alwyn being thrown about dev patel you would just kind of hope that you know they they are able to you know really change the writing I think is what actually matters and you know the character can kind of be absorbed by anyone I think but to really give it a boost and a newness and, a, and an excitement I don't think it's about having a woman bond or, or anything like that I think it's about just doing something more interesting with with what the franchise can can do and can offer there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com who'd mm-hmm. be your second or third pick adam behind jack loudon or is that the only one you'd be happy with no i'm jack all the way no i don't know <laughs> it's it's funny because i think with 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 bond i mean you know the if you look at kind of who's who's um leading the way in the odds with the bookies it's like it's still like idris elba and people like that which which you know would have been great 10 years ago but you look at it now and it's like well craig's in his kind of 50s they're probably not going to make another film at least, you know, maybe four or five years. So by that time, if, if you want to give someone a good run at it, a good like decade, which generally I think that's what they're looking to do now, unless unless someone ends up just being like really bad and a film tanks, you know, I think they'll be looking for like a, lo- a longer run. 
So yeah, you've got to be looking at someone who is in that younger bracket, probably like around the 30, 30 mark. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, pe- people talk about Richard Madden, sort of another name which mm. comes up a lot. I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't mind that. I, I quite, I would quite like it, it to be someone who's a bit, a bit more, maybe a bit more suave and a bit more urbane. I don't know. I, I, I would quite like to see a bit of a return to like the Brosnan, <laughs> Brosnan era. I think, I think for what it's worth, I think Brosnan is not necessarily in the context of ha- the films that he's in and how they play out. But in in terms of how he in, in inhabits the role, it's probably the closest to like the Fleming. If you read any of the books, it's that closest to like the Fleming idea of Bond. Mm-hmm. Well. There are so many suggestions we could go through, and sure, listeners, I'm sure you have plenty to suggest as well. So let us know what you make of No Time to Die and what you make of the question of who should play Bond next, if you care about such things, at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, we're going to a much smaller scale film, although featuring the sort of stunt you might find in a Roger Moore James Bond film. We have Anne at 13,000 feet. Anne has a seemingly stable life as a daycare worker, but after skydiving for her best friend's bachelorette party, the ground shifts beneath her feet. The pressures of her daily life threaten to overwhelm her, and when she meets Matt, she begins to push the limits of what's socially acceptable. So, Caitlin, this was a festival film, Toronto. Was that was that actually a, a year or two ago now? Is this another long-delayed release? Yep, 2019 I saw this film in, in Toronto. Um, so yeah, and now I'm really pleased that it's finding a home um, on Mubi here in the UK because I think it's a, just a really great example of a, a, a small budget indie movie that's just well worth everyone's time, to be honest. Can you tell us a little bit more what to expect for this film? Because of course it's quite low budget, it's quite subtle, it's quite short as well, like 70 odd minutes. Um, very much his character study, I suppose. What, what, what should we expect? Yeah, I mean, it's funny to talk about this in, in the context, well, in, in relation in some ways to, to a James Bond film, because, you know, it couldn't be further from a Bond film, but but equally the kind of tension and the pressure and the, the stress that it kind of induces might may be similar to, you know, fight scenes in James Bond or action sequences. It's very high pressure. Um, so, so, yeah, as you say, it's, it's quite a small character study. It's just about this this woman Anne who is you know seemingly suffering with some kind of anxiety disorder or or a kind of mental illness that goes un- undiagnosed throughout the film but we just see her kind of trying to navigate her life and trying to navigate situations at work she works at a daycare um which i think is a really fascinating kind of uh kind of microcosm for the world at large really you know the types of interactions you have there the way that you know, people clash and, and, and you know, children are, are trying to grow and learn and sort of, you know, come up against one another. So it's really interesting that that's the sort of main, the central setting. But then she also goes to a wedding, you know, she 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 introduces her new boyfriend to her family in this very like chaotic scene. Um, it's just these kinds of little moments of her life that are really kind of becoming very tumultuous and very hard to control, despite what, you know, seems to be their simplicity because of this sort of, you know, uh, in a in a sort of torment that she's facing, um, it's very similar, I think, in in lots of ways to the work of John Cassavetes, if people are familiar um, with films like A Woman Under the Influence. Um, in the same way that uh, Gina Rowlands in that film is just this kind of like 
you know, ball of sort of tragic energy in lots of ways. And she's she's incredibly expressive. She's incredibly, you know, interior in her performance. Um, Dara Campbell in, in Anne at 13,000 Feet is 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 also kind of operating in that way, um, trying to get out what's sort of inside her and and, and how that um, causes the sort of havoc and the, the chaos around her. And the film is, yeah, very, you know, shot very, very closely and, and very um, kind of claustrophobically in lots of ways to also convey that um, really, really just impressively controlled, but also loose and sort of flowing um, in a way that really, gets to the heart of this character's uh like interior turmoil um yeah just a really great example of like low budget filmmaking i think mm-hmm. well worth your time and it's as you say it's only 75 or so minutes um and yeah just a really powerful example of performance you know camera work storytelling um in yeah very like tightly controlled uh, space and 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 setting yeah, reading reviews of this, it sounds like Dara Campbell is a bit of a triple threat. Also co-wrote and associate producer on this as well as starring in. So one of those sort of festival discoveries where we should look out for that name in the future. Yeah, well, she's she's really great. She's also been in a lot of uh, the work by another Canadian filmmaker, uh, Sofia Badanowitz, um, which is maybe harder to seek out. But if you do get a chance to see some of it, her work is um, much kind of softer in some ways than this film. But Dara Campbell is just such a central force, at, uh, you know, in, in the middle of all of these works. And um, yeah, real, real kind of emotional power, I think she brings to, to her performances. So she's definitely one to watch. Absolutely. So what scores would you give Anne at 13,000 feet? Um, I mean, I would say my anticipation, I didn't know much about the filmmaker. I didn't know, uh, you know, at the time, didn't know much about Dara Campbell. I'd say going into this, you know, it was maybe a three because it just sounded interesting. I'm always interested in films about kind of, uh, you know, these kind of focus studies on women and, and, and people kind of going about their daily lives in that way. So maybe a three. Um, and then I'd say four and four for enjoyment and, and retrospect. I think it's just really impressive. Um, and and yeah, just a, as I said, really kind of great example of what you can do on a low budget and in a short time time span and you know you can create as much intensity and pressure as a bond action movie and you can you know you don't have to have a you know repetitive fight scenes you know over and over again it's the same creating the same kind of tension and emotion um in in very unique and um and and sort of more subtle ways i think and a great reminder that Bond isn't the only film out this weekend. It may seem like exactly. that when you look at the listings <laughs> and there are 50 screenings of it every hour in, in, in your listings. But uh, it's so great to hear that there is a, a nice gem out there on Mubi to watch. So listeners, maybe if you fancy something other than No Time to Die, of course, there are other films out too. But and at 13,000 feet is on Mubi. But up next, we have Film Club and it's back to Bond-ish <laughs> for the uh, non-canonical Never Say Never Again. bit of synopsis for never say never again before we get into the probably the production background as well because we need to set this up but first of all sean connery returns to face the greatest challenge of his secret service career threatening global destruction by cruise missiles arch villain maximilian largo is holding the free world to ransom and m is forced to put semi-retired commander james bond back in action with his 007 license renewed so adam you're not a bond head but you've probably watched this you know about the backstory behind this so this is 
coming out of the fact that there's some there was competition over who owned the rights to the story of Thunderball because the script for that was written and then there were multiple writers and then one of them got the rights to remake only Thunderball and with certain elements of the Bond story that, that they owned. So the thing that I found out on this rewatch of Never Say Never Again is that Eon, who make all of the main Bond films, lost the rights to Blofeld and Spectre in the, in the 70s. So this is until... Uh, the author of all James's pain, uh, Christoph Waltz, turns up in Spectre. This is the the only appearance of Blofeld and Spectre on screen. Came out the same year as Octopussy, um, just l- later in the year, very much Battle of the Bonds. And they brought back decrepit age-old Sean Connery, who actually at this stage is the age that Daniel Craig is now. <laughs> <laughs> and also was younger than Roger Moore was in Octopussy. Absolutely. Wow. I didn't realise this. So Connery is three year, three years younger than Moore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I suppose I, uh, Sean lost his hair earlier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, a bit, bit more on the backstory. So when um, Fleming obviously died quite young and kind of before I think he had finished what he was trying to do with Bond, he um, he was kind of looking at doing a film. Um, they didn't actually think that they were going to use one of the existing stories. They wanted to write a new story just for, for the film. And he, he brought in Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham and, and they sort of worked up a screenplay. Um, it never got made at that time. Um, but Fleming then went away and basically wrote Thunderball, mm-hmm. adapting this existing screenplay um, and didn't credit either McClory or Whittingham and it became this kind of legal battle. I think basically him and McClory fell out or there was some kind of issue about um, not wanting to use uh, or have McClory as a as a kind of producer on, on the film. Um, and so he went away and wrote Thunderball and ultimately McClory retained some kind of writing um, credit and, and, you know, the, the, the license to go and make a film based on that story. So, I mean, Never Say Never Again is kind of talked about as like a remake of Thunderball and it is to a large extent but it is also very much its own thing and um, it, it it's a fascinating film I think it, we talked about all the iconography and the kind of um, I guess like the cliches that you associate mm. with Bond and and one of the great things about this film is that it's it doesn't have any of that and I don't know how much of that was like a rights issue but like for example you know there's no like gun barrel walk on intro um it, it has the kind of theme song but the, the theme song is like a bit of a refrain throughout it doesn't have the kind of big opening sequence like you know the, the films of the 60s and 70s kind of pioneered um you obviously have connery returning um and they definitely play up that aspect of like it is one last job and he's he's kind of a bit over the hill um and maybe a little bit like out of step with the, the modern world. I mean, there's a there's an amazing scene which is a bit of a kind of call back to the Casino Royale like poker game where he's playing a video game against <laughs> against the villain, which is like, I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty bad scene when you look at it now. It's like, but doesn't really have much tension to it. But um, but it's quite fascinating. Like that's that's where Bond was at that time, and that's where these films kind of were. Um, and actually, I think in some ways it's aged better than Octopussy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Connery just, I mean, you know, he, he just knows exactly what he's doing with this character. Obviously, he had this big uh, gap between, I think, uh, is it Diamonds of Forever was, I think, the last yeah. proper one he did. 
so it's a good like 12 year gap or something and it's it's a long time that you know to be away from the character but the fact that he just kind of walks back on and delivers this performance i mean it's like he's he's partly like phoning it in but it's just it's just great i think he's just great and this film is like generally regarded as one of the worst bonds and and obviously non-canonical and but i actually think it's it's uh it's got a lot of merit and and it's good fun i mean it doesn't definitely doesn't take itself as seriously as something like no time to die and i mean even the fact i mean god i would absolutely love it if no time to die had ended on like a a freeze frame (laughs) wink to the camera (laughs) as this does i mean that would have been like the 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 ultimate like sign off for craig i think but it really is funny how it plays almost like a parody of bond uh, at at times and connery is so magnetic a screen presence so he just pull you through all of this but um edward fox as m is being played as this sort of um kind of satirical politician figure rather than the sort of stalwart military men of old similarly when we have um it's Rowan Atkinson as the the, the the MI6 agent that is is sort of tailing him all the way through in a in a very madcap slapstick kind of way. Sean Connery brought in Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet of uh, Porridge and um, Likely Lads fame to do to punch up the writing. Apparently, the majority of the screenplay that they actually shot was written by them, which probably adds you know explains that it's quite jokey and comic. And I think that's the part that might have aged the worst but what is fascinating about this is almost looking in a hall of mirrors style at what bond in the early 80s could have been because they really did try and figure out who would be the right people to make a bond movie they get irvin kirshner off the back of empire strikes back the majority of the production team design cinematographer etc have just come off raiders of the lost ark so great talent behind the camera but i just it's a very inert film overall for me. You say, Adam, that Sean Connery just walks on screen. He mostly is just walking and maybe yeah. does a punch every now and then. <laughs> this, this is the this is the thing that I don't know whether this was the just a result or, or or consequence of the fact that Connery was a bit older and couldn't do certain stunts and things. Um, I mean, there's one amazing uh, sequence which is a motorbike mm-hmm. chase sequence, um, which actually there's a, it's it's an interesting parallel to No Time to Die, which has a similar scene. I think is is you know, obviously, that has a lot more like trickery and and some some sort of more impressive shots in terms of the the setup. But I think this is just as like exciting. Um, but generally speaking, like you say, Bond is kind of at a much operating at a much slower pace than this, and I actually kind of like that. I mean, it, Craig is constantly rushing around. You know, you never you never see Craig like eating an apple like. Like yeah. like in this, Connery is just kind of strolling around and, and sort of things happen in the moments in between the action where he's just, you know, eating an apple, walking into a room and then, oh, the, the, some, you know, someone's gone missing or something's happened. And I quite like the way that it that it plots that out and, and, and it's, yeah, it just feels a little bit more... Um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a bit more of a relaxed film, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say, but... Caitlin, what did you make of this? Well, I mean, I'd heard that this is like considered the worst Bond, or you know, non-canonical Bond film, but I actually had a really good time with this film. I think it's like, 
it's it's shameful you know like what they got away with like in at that time like these movies just kind of didn't care like the the sort of like grown worthy comments that they make to women or like you know the sort of pithy one-liners that bond has like they just you know they got away with it all and in some ways the this film and i think no time to die like as you're saying adam there are a lot of like weird parallels i think you know there's like the guy with the like electronic eye or like the bionic eye is is the same in both um the even down to the fact that like bond in no time to die he kind of he's he's kind of giving off this weird like anti-millennial vibe and like he's kind of not with the times and he sort of doesn't want you know like these new things to come through and there are certain comments where I thought like oh that's like kind of weird to hear a a Bond character say and yeah like Sean Connery is clearly kind of past it at at this point and never say never again but but it still kind of works and I think for me somewhere in the middle of those two films is like my ideal Bond movie because Never Say Never Again has this like kind of incredible like grandeur and like sense of fun to it through things like costume through like these small moments like Adam's talking about you know where he's like eating an apple and then he like shoves it down on this like statue that has like a spike pointing out of it (laughs) and it has like these great visual moments where you know the 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 actor is like doing kind of acrobatics on a on a surfboard and like you know she kind of flies and lands in front of Sean Connery and it's very silly but there's also something kind of kind of great about how it looks visually and how you know how how sort of fun and and grand it was but then at the same time you know as I say like it's you know just kind of the 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 commentary on women and the 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 sort of old-fashioned humor in lots of ways like doesn't doesn't necessarily work but I do think there's lots about this that's very fun um it's you know more adventurous in a way than these like newer Bond films which kind of as I I was saying before like are following this almost like television formula where you know they're trying to like hit all these emotional beats for an audience and have this aesthetic that's been like very common in in what we've been seeing on our screens whereas those kind of older films are slightly freer and they're just like having fun and doing lots of interesting things um like I absolutely love the the last in the last scene when Kim Basinger is wearing that like tiger swimsuit like it's just stuff like that is actually really great visually um and it's very fun and and just like just just great to watch um I also loved that this film had a a fight scene with with sharks um and like the ridiculous moment where he just like closes a door on a shark (laughs) like what what on earth but it's it's kind of great I still have no idea how they film no yeah I was thinking this I was like what did they how did they even do that like he he just fully shuts a door on a shark it's it's great well, that's never seen ever again. <laughs> this is this is one where the production backstory is so good, and there's so many great bits of trivia. You know, Adam, you mentioned Sean Connery getting back into battle shape, and that was Steven Seagal was his trainer back then. <laughs> there's also one trivia tidbit on IMDb, which you should always take with a grain of salt. This is the last time Sean Connery was clean shaven on the big screen. Beautiful, wow. just, uh, you know, and uh, and with a full head of hair, it's probably as well. <laughs> miraculous, miraculous head of, head of hair. But yes, that's never say never again, listeners. Let us know: is this the worst Bond film? Is it a hidden gem? Should it be reappraised? Let us know at the usual channels: Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com or via Twitter at lwlies. Next week, we're not doing a conventional episode with new releases because on the sixth of October, the London Film Festival starts. We're going to be doing a preview episode with. Some of our highlights from the program listeners please subscribe wherever you pod if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews we'd love you to leave one for us too that's it for this week we'll see you next time 
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.